to the podcast from the Sunday night service at New Life Church. The Sunday night service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. Uh, we're in Luke 10 tonight, and I'm going to try to do this in 27 minutes. It's never happened before, so I don't have much hope, but I'm going to try. Um, as we continue in the series here on Luke, where, where tonight's passage is maybe one of the more familiar parables uh, that Jesus told, maybe second only to the prodigal son parable, this is the parable of the Good Samaritan found in Luke 10, and so if you want to flip over there and, and get ready for it, you can. Uh, my hope for us tonight, though, is that even though it's a story that we've heard probably many times, if you've grown up in church, maybe you've heard it since uh, you first heard it on a flannel graph board, um, you know, with like people in bedsheets wrapped in. Anyway, um, but my hope is that, that this would be one of those stories that hearing it with a different lens and maybe a different layer would help you see things about it that you never noticed before. I was thinking about uh, movies that are kind of like that. You know, you sort of watch a movie like... Uh, Ten Things I Hate About You, or whatever. I mean, I n- never really saw that. But, um, no, I did, actually, and I kind of liked it. But, but you know, you want, and, then, and then you find out afterwards that, oh, this is, you know, this is based on Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew. And then, oh, and then you start to notice maybe different things about it. Maybe it's a poor a parody of that. Uh, or maybe a movie like The Sixth Sense. You, do you remember that? The, I think it was one of the first M. Night Shyamalan movies. And you, you're watching this thing, and I watched it in college. I was on the edge of my seat, you know. And, uh, and then you find out, oh, my gosh, Bruce Willis was dead the whole movie, you know. And then you watch it again. Sorry, did I just give that away? <laughs> uh, and, then you, and, then you, and then you watch it again the second time, and then you, you see things you never saw before, like, oh, my gosh, yeah, no one talks to him, you know. And then you, you pick up all these different little things. And some, I was talking to someone in the lobby, and they said, yeah, it's kind of like you watch it the second time, it feels new again. Well, sometimes a new lens can do that. And that's a bit of my hope tonight as we, as we look at this very, very familiar story. So turn there with me. Uh, In Luke 10, verse 25. Now an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, uh, I want to stop here for a moment because this question, you hear it as, as evangelicals and you think, Oh, well, he's asking Jesus, how do I get to heaven? Except that he's not. This question, how do I, what must I do to inherit eternal life, is very different than our question of, Oh, how do I get to heaven? Or what do I need to do? For the Jews, this, you might say this question, I guess, Jeff, you could throw this slide up earlier than we thought, but this question is actually a way of saying uh, who gets in on the age to come, who will be part of the age to come. Uh, very quickly here, I've, I've talked about this loads on Sunday night, so I hope to not have to rehash too much of this, but we're, we're trained over the last couple hundred years, especially because of the Enlightenment era and the way of uh, certain uh, European philosophy stuff that's impacted us, maybe even farther back to Greek philosophy, I guess, in some ways. But we're trained to think in terms of a physical realm and then a spiritual realm, or earth and then heaven. And that's true, that, that, that there is that. We know there is that. But for the Jews, what they were thinking of, what they were really concerned with, was not the dualism between here and there, or earth and heaven. They were concerned about a dualism of time, of this age and the age to come. Uh, Almost as if they were saying, okay, look, we know we're living in this age, but there is an age to come when God will finally act, when Yahweh will act. It's the day of the Lord. If you've ever read that in the Old Testament prophets and Zechariah and others, this phrase, the the great and mighty, great and terrible day of the Lord. It's this reference to the day when God finally acts, 
judges all Israel's enemies, rescues Israel, and sets it all right. Okay, so you can imagine as a Jew, you're not waiting for how to get from here to there. You're waiting for God to finally act and start the age to come. So this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, is, is really, it's a, it's a phrase that we find in, in uh, different ones of the literature, parts of, of the literature that we have in between the Old Testament and New Testament, enough that we can say that this phrase more or less means, how do I get in on what God's going to do? How do I become part of the age to come? Uh, maybe, an, uh, yeah, an, who, will, who will get in on what God's doing? Who will be shown to be the true people of God? There was a lot of discussion about Israel being unfaithful, and look, that's why we were in exile and all this stuff, and that's why the Romans are here, and that's why nothing's going right. And so there was a lot of angst about saying, you know what, who really are the true covenant people of God? Because that guy's technically a Jew, but he's not, you know, and all of this judging going on. So this teacher comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's very much a question of who gets in on what God is doing? Who are the ones that really get to be used by God in some way or, or get to be shown to be God's people? And Jesus says, well, what is written in the law? How do you understand it? And the expert answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But the expert wanting to justify himself to Jesus said, or wanting to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now we shouldn't take this phrase wanting to justify himself uh, in the way that Luther and the reformers meant it in terms of wanting to show that he was righteous on his own merit. No, that, that, the, the, the context, the flow of the story is a guy who's trying to trap Jesus. Luke told us that. And then Jesus says, well, what do you think? And then he gives an answer. And Jesus says, yep. And he's thinking, and that was very anticlimactic. <laughs> this is not how I saw this going in my mind. And so wanting to sort of justify himself maybe in showing that Jesus really is a false teacher or showing that, that Jesus was really doing something different than maybe the traditional Jewish expectation. This guy's looking for another way, and so he says, well, who is my neighbor? Which is a way of saying, all right, who do I love? Who should I love? What really is my responsibility here? I was thinking to, to get a sense of how odd this might sound, uh, to try to put it in a modern, modern context, maybe. Uh, imagine that there was a, a wise, older pastor, and a young a teenager came to him, maybe a 20-something, came to this pastor and says, Pastor, I want to be used by God. I feel like God has called me to be a mighty man of God. I want to be used by God. What do I do to get in on what God is doing in the world today? How can I be used by God? And the pastor says, Well, how do you read the Bible? What do you think the Bible says? And the young man says, Hi, I've got it. Love God, love people. And the pastor says, you're right. And the young man responds by saying, all right, well, which people? Now you're beginning to get the sense of this scene because it's a very strange question, isn't it? Well, who is my neighbor? To whom do I owe some loyalty or allegiance? And maybe it helps to remember this day of the land of Israel and the different people that were living there and the different trouble that they were having saying who really is in and who really is not 
And who should I really help? Who do I treat as my neighbor? Who's part of my tribe? Who are my peeps? And who are the ones that I can kind of, eh? But it's a very revealing question. And so then Jesus responds with a story. You've got to love this. And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him up, and went off, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, but when he saw the injured man, he passed by the other side. And so too a Levite, when he came up to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was traveling came to where the injured man was, and when he saw him, he felt compassion for him. And he went up to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever else you spend, I will repay you. And when I come back, when I come back this way. And then Jesus says to the man, Now which of these three do you think became a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? And the expert in religious law said, Well, the one who showed mercy to him. And so Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. Now, it's interesting because the Samar- of who the Samaritans were. Uh, if you kind of can picture in your mind the rough flow of the story of Israel, the story in the, in the Bible, when right after Solomon's reign, uh, the kingdom gets split in two, and there's ten tribes in the north that keep the name Israel, and there's two tribes in the south that are called Judah, and A lot of our stories of the rest of the Old Testament are about the good and bad kings of Judah, though they had a few pretty good ones, and the bad kings of Israel. Israel had some really awful ones, and there's reasons for that that we can get into if this was a Bible class, but it's not quite that. But it's a fascinating story, and the bulk of the Old Testament is the story of, of both of those kingdoms and how God's challenging them with different prophets and all of this stuff. Well, in 722 B.C., Israel gets carried off by the Assyrians. The ten tribes get carried off by the Assyrians, But the Assyrians are rather mean folks, and they don't really like to just carry you as slaves. In fact, what they'd like to do is obliterate your race from the face of the earth. And so what the Assyrians do is they scatter you, and they they make you sort of intermingle and intermarry and all of this stuff. And to add insult to injury, quite literally, the Assyrians brought in people from just random places around the region and brought them back into the land of Israel and said, okay... This is your land now. Go ahead and live. And it's interesting because the ones that the Assyrians, the, the ones that the people, the Jews that the Assyrians left behind were the sick and the lame and the cripple and the weak and the ones that they just did. So you already have people that maybe would have been on the fringe of society that are left behind. Then you have these strangers that are being brought in and made to intermarry and mingle uh, and, and, and sort of form a, a different people. And then you have them living in the very homes and fields and lands that once were yours. Now, eventually, Judah gets taken by the Babylonians in 586 B.C., but, but Judah, the Babylonians are a bit nicer. They keep them there for a little while, and then Persia overruns the Babylonians. It's like, uh, you know, trading spaces, empire edition. You know, everybody's taking turns to rule the world. Well, finally, the Persians let 
Judah go back, and you remember this, this is in our Bible, in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. They come back, they rebuild the wall, they rebuild the temple. Well, guess who else is living there? Samaritans. These people that are the descendants of the left-behind folks and these strangers that were brought in to mingle with them and intermarry with them. You can imagine that there was a hatred towards those people like you would not believe. So much so that the Samaritans, during while Nehemiah is building his wall, the Samaritans decide they're going to build their own temple. That was the, this unbelievable sin to say well, that they could have a temple. No, they, this is not like church where everybody gets to start their own and build their own. This is like there is one temple. The Samaritans decide that they're going to build their own, and they decide they have their own version of the Torah that's a little bit different. And now the Jews really hate them because not only are they living in the, the lands and the homes and the fields that their, other tr- that, the, that their tribe members used to have, now they're in taking their religion and twisting it, making it the strange thing. It was common in the synagogues of Jesus' day for Jewish rabbis to preach, against, pre- preach hatred against the Samaritans. This was a lower than lower group of people to the Jews. And Jesus decides that the hero of his story is going to be a Samaritan. I wonder what that would be like for us. I wonder who fits that bill. I wonder if we were to say, well, gee, let's see, who's that person that we kind of say does not belong or that we look down on? Who's the person that maybe because of race, maybe it's because of religion, there's a very particular religion that we're all pretty upset about. Maybe it's a person of a certain sexual orientation that so many times in church we're so worried about. Who is it? Who is the person that would be appalling to you, insulting to you to be the hero of a story that Jesus told? When you think about that, then you've got the sense of disgust that this expert in the law might have felt. Jesus, how dare you tell a story where a Samaritan's the hero? What are you doing? You notice that when Jesus asks him, who's the one that became a neighbor, the guy can't bring himself to say Samaritan. What does he say? Well, I suppose the one who showed mercy. (laughs) Can't even say it. Samaritan. Who is that person? It's interesting to me that Jesus changes the question. The young man begins with the question, who's my neighbor? I mean, who really? And Jesus says, which one became a neighbor? Do you know what I think? I think a better question to focus this parable around, a lens to read this parable in, is not the question, who are we supposed to help? But it's really the question of, who are you unwilling to help? Because by Jesus making a Samaritan the hero of the story, he exposed a kind of hatred in this young expert in the law's heart. He exposed a hatred in this guy's heart that that said, bingo, that's the guy you're not willing to include as your neighbor, isn't it? 
That's the guy you're unwilling to see as your neighbor. It's good and fine for you to give the right Sunday school answer or Jewish you know, answer and to say, yes, love the Lord with all your heart. That's, that's in Deuteronomy. This is not like he came up with it, okay? Love your neighbor as yourself. Well done. Bravo. Now, who is the one you're unwilling to include as your neighbor? Who is the person that if they were in need, you would not want to help or love? And my, by Jesus telling the story and flipping the question on its head, he went, bam, to the heart of this young man and said, let's go beyond your talk of summarizing the law and let me show you that you're not even ready to love. There's hatred in your heart. There's prejudice in your heart. This is not a story about just saying we should help people in need. This is also a story. It is that. But it is also a story about saying who are the ones that are in need that you're unwilling to help. That's challenging. That's convicting when you think, well, maybe I don't really want them to be fed or have water. Maybe I just want this group or this group, but maybe I don't really want that group. I think it was St. Augustine when he was talking about this parable, he did a very fanciful um, allegorical approach to it. Everything represented something. You know, the, the beast or the donkey that he rode on was this and the inn was the church and the, you know, all of this stuff. And there, it's a bit much. And yet, there is something about seeing Jesus himself as the Good Samaritan. There is something about the way Luke has told us Jesus' stories. Everything Luke has already told us about Jesus is how Jesus is willing to go and heal a Samaritan widow's son. and all. This is Jesus not afraid of crossing boundaries to include people who shouldn't be included and rescue people who shouldn't be rescued. And Jesus comes and he's doing all this stuff. And so in a very real way, Jesus is like the rejected Samaritan who ends up rescuing the broken. In a very real way, we could put that lens on and say, you know, maybe Jesus became the rejected one so that he could rescue the broken one. This he's sort of describing himself in some ways. Would they accept the Messiah that was going to die and be killed by the Romans? What other biases and prejudices were they not willing to get over and so they would even reject him? That's a very real lens for this story. But where we need to land tonight is this. What does it mean as the church to be the Good Samaritan? Or to be the good Jew too? the wounded Samaritan, if we were to flip it. What does it mean to help those in need that we don't think we should? I told you last week that I had the chance, of, uh, you know, opportunity to serve on jury duty for the first time. I was very grateful to do my civic duty, and it was a very enlightening experience. Um, the case was about possession of heroin, and as the laws go, it's really not about whether you were using it, and it's really not about whether it's yours. It's not about ownership, and it's not about usage. The way the laws are, it's about possession. It's if it was on your, your vehicle or something that's within your domain that you had knowing possession of. And so 
were discussing this in the jury room and talking about the case and all this stuff. And, and we had come to the verdict that there was just no loophole here. The, the, the defendants had admitted that she was a heroin user, but she was denying that that heroin found in her car that night was hers. Well, it was a very difficult thing for her to get out of. There was too much stacked against her. And so we, 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 we reached this verdict and, uh, and we're just about to leave the jury room. And, and everyone knows by this point that I'm a pastor. And, and I was the one, truth be told, for the three hours of debating this that was trying to find a way to say, well, maybe it was, you know. And so they knew that I was one of the last ones to come to agree. And many of these people on the jury, all of them actually except for one, had never had any contact with a person who was a drug user. There was one woman who was the very last person who was to change her vote, and she had family members who had OD'd and died, family members who were caught in this destructive lifestyle. And you sense that she had the most compassion because she kind of understood this cycle. You could say that... But nevertheless, we all agreed there was not enough to, you know let her off, and so we found her guilty, and as we're getting ready to leave the room, one of the more outspoken members of the jury, who was just brass and pretty brazen the whole time, just very sure of herself, and she says, as if to console me, well, you know, everybody's got a choice. This is one of the things we say to make it okay for us to walk on the other side of the road and pass by. Well, everybody's got a choice, you know. I mean, who told him to go down the road to Jericho that way? Well, everybody's got a choice, you know, and I'm a priest, and that, who knows who he is? I believe in personal responsibility, and I believe that everybody has a choice. But I also am well aware that nobody chooses freely and 100% independently. We're shaped by a lot of things. We're shaped by the neighborhood we happen to grow up in. We're shaped by what a relative does or doesn't do to you as a child. We're shaped by the friends we happen to fall into at an early... We're shaped by a lot of things. To me, it's, it's a fantasy to say that everybody is a 100% free-choosing agent and everybody's got a choice, you know. Does that make it okay to cross the road and walk on the other side? Who are you unwilling to help? The person who's made bad choices? Yesterday, Holly and I spent the day up in Denver for a training that I'll tell you a bit more about in, in a moment, but we, we were watching uh, a video of stories of, of homes, that, of, of people who had uh, either given up a child for adoption or who had adopted someone or who... Uh, the, the uh, person who was adopted themselves. They call it the um, adoption triad. And uh, as we're watching this video, so, much of these, so many of these stories came from uh, just the post-depression era. It was a diff- very different day. But story after story after story, these parents, birth parents who gave up their children kept saying, and I, 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 I didn't want to. I just I, I wanted to keep this child, but I went home my my parents were pretty devout or pretty religious, and they said, there is no way you're bringing that baby in our home. 
And I was heartbroken watching this because what values shape your decision? Is it the values of personal responsibility and doggone hard work? Or is it Jesus saying to you, who became a neighbor? Who became a neighbor? If we're going to be a church that is willing to follow Jesus to the person who's lying half dead on the side of the road, it's not an option for you and I to cross and go to the other side. It's not. This week on Wednesday, New Life Church, in, in, in partnership with a couple of other churches in our city, will open the doors of our very first little dream center. It's an awesome thing. It's kind of a soft launch. You know, there's a few specific people that will start receiving medical treatment. It's designed for women. Uh, I'm not ex- 100% sure, but I, I believe it's, uh, it's OB-related uh, me- medical care. And in a month, it'll open fully to the city. And it's a very, very exciting thing. You can talk to Matthew Ayers, one of the pastors on staff, to find out a little bit more about it. Here's Adam Quinn. I believe you were involved in some of the architectural drawings. Am I right, Adam? You know, Adam's a school worship student from Ireland, but he's actually an architect. So here he is studying to be a worship leader, and he volunteers his time to draw up building plans for the Dream Center. It's pretty cool, isn't it? Adam's story is not unique. There there are loads of people that are doing different things because we refuse to be a church who in our very city walks to the other side of the road and says, what a bummer for you. Everybody has a choice. I don't believe that the takeaway from this is, okay, one, two, three, let's solve the problems of the world. Let's go. I don't have a radical social vision. But I do know this. There are those within our reach. There are those that we're walking along the same side of the road for crying out loud. It would be more effort to cross and go on the other side. There are those that are right here that are within our reach that we could do something about. But what prevents us from that? Is it the inconvenience of it? The prejudices associated with it? Maybe it's something as simple as, yeah, I don't got the resources to do that. I love, Pastor Brady said this morning, one of the most compassionate things we can do is start saving up money so that when you do encounter a person within your reach to help, that you actually have the financial margin to do something about it. Now, that's not so radical because we all, all, many of us are taught to set aside a savings account for my own retirement. And that's great. That's good. Nothing evil about that. But what if we could be so radical that we'd set aside savings for just benevolence? For just being able to help another person, being able to say, no, I'll buy these groceries this week, I'll do that. No, yeah. 
Last weekend, this weekend, at the Pikes Peak Community College parking lot, we've had this freely give, freely receive thing where new lifers have come and donated stuff, food, non-perishable food, furniture, all this stuff. And people have come to get it. Russ Goslin, I don't know if you're still here, Russ, but you, he just popped in after being there and said it was going really well. These are the kinds of things that if we would say, okay, what if? We could take these words of Jesus so seriously that not only do we let prejudices and hatred and boundaries and all those other stuff fall, but we also go the extra step of saying, Let's be, let, let me intentionally save up. I've got a little fund in, in, my, in our bank account for this. It's a budget item, the Samaritan budget. It's a little line item in our own plan. What if we could do that? There's been something that's been brewing for Holly and I for a long time, and she's standing at the back there because Jonas is somewhere crawling. Who knows what he's doing? But my wife grew up in Iowa, and the town that she grew up in in Iowa is, is pretty, um, nothing wrong with it, but it's, it's pretty singular in its race. And, um, and, uh, and she didn't know any families who had adopted or really meet uh, people from, from other races, which was all kinds of interesting stuff when we began to date. Um, but those are stories for another day. Um, but she, ever since she was a little girl, she had this desire in her heart to adopt. And um, I think you were in seventh grade and you were asked to kind of say like your life in 20 years or whatever, something like that. And she wrote this little essay of like, I was going to have two, three kids, you know, two girls and a boy, and then I was going to adopt. I knew this story, but I just, I didn't take it that seriously, shame on me. <laughs> confession, confession. And we got married, and I said, well, that's an interesting idea. You know, well, sure, let's think about it. I'll set it aside, you know. And then, you know, we, a couple years into our marriage, what do you, yeah, well, you know, let's have our own kids and, you know, like see what happens there. And so we did. And then, I, and then I had all these fears. I was like, well, what if, what if, what, what if I can't love an adopted child the, the way I love, we love our own kids? Like, what if I can't do okay, that? Just... And last year, after reading N.T. Wright, of all things, I began to see how the gospel is about adoption. And I know that's like, yeah, yeah, hello, Captain Obvious, yeah. <laughs> but the justification itself is not just some legal act of declaring you righteous, but that when God justifies us, he declares us members of his family. There's something powerful about that. And so one night, Holly says, hey, what, what are you thinking about, you know, this? And I said, I, I think we're supposed to do this. I think we're, I think we're, I think this is what we're supposed to do. Now this is very inconvenient, you know. And I don't know all the details of it. We don't know all the details. We have international is sort of this direction we're kind of headed in, but there's all kinds of possibilities that we're open to. We don't have a clear vision of how this story is going to end, but that's just it. Samaritan says, I'm going to come back and check on you. 
I don't know how this story is going to end. May not make it on the New Life Stories blog. But, hey, I'm going to take a risk. That's where we're at. And we're kind of almost done with our home study process. We were up in Denver yesterday because this was a class required of us to take. We've got an agency, all this stuff. So I'm telling you this because I, I know that by saying it, now you're going to hold us to it, which is good. But I'm telling you this because I'm saying to you, this is the kind of church I want us to be. The kind of church that says, what if we set aside resources and time and intentionality and don't cross the road? Stay. So who, who's in our reach? What can we do? And to do that in Jesus' name. Amen? Let's pray. I'm sure I missed all kinds of PowerPoint slides tonight, Jeff. I was a nightmare to follow. I'm sorry. Sometimes that happens, huh? Spirit of God, would you show us who we're unwilling to help and who we're unwilling to love and who we've prejudged and who we've pre-dismissed and who we've pre-set aside and who we've... Our Father in heaven, thank you that you sent your Son to find us laying half dead on the side of the road in our sin, and that Jesus, you came, you bound up our wounds, you gave us your Spirit, and you said, I'm coming back. Jesus, make us like you, by your Spirit. Teach us to be willing to make sacrifices, to set aside, to plan, to be ready so that when we're walking along the way, along the way of life, we see it, something within our reach, something we can do that's small. Give us the courage to act. Give us the faith to trust where we are scared out of our minds so that the world will know that this world is not forgotten. That the poor and the weak and the hungry are not forgotten, but that Jesus is the King. Make us the King's people that go in Jesus' name to love, to give, to serve, to bless. Send us out now with your Spirit. Give us eyes this week, every day this week. Give us eyes to see. Break down the lenses that prevent us from seeing. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.